We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today's episode is sponsored by Beeler Tech. With a focus on building meaningful relationships for individuals and companies, Beeler Tech facilitates powerful connections and conversations, empowers with hands-on coaching and consulting, and amplifies with targeted exposure and messaging. In the digital advertising and media world, Beeler Tech is your connection to what's possible. Thank you, Beeler Tech. And guess what? Today joining us is Dai Cerullo, who's the head of inclusion at Jam. Jump in and get to know Dai now. Hello. How are you? Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is so great. I'm so happy to be here, especially in these times when we are so looking forward to connection. So I'm so happy to be with y'all this evening. (laughs) Absolutely. We're thrilled you're hanging out with us and can't wait to learn about what's happening with you at JAM these days. Fascinating what's happening there. And then also a little bit more about what's going on with you. So for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your responsibilities and what you're doing? And first, what is JAM and what are you doing there? Yeah, so JAM is a Boston-based tech company that works in the blockchain space. We do digital NFTs, so of comedy moments right now. We did a comedy special this past July with a lot of really cool comedians, and we were able to sort of turn those into NFT moments that people were interested in owning. So that has all been very, very fun. And the comedians we've been able to work with have been really fun. and. Yeah it's the most fun you can have at work, right? Working for a startup is basically, that's how you get addicted to that stuff. It's the most fun you can have at work. So that's what we're doing right now. And what I do there is handle sort of every part of the employee life cycle. So all the places that we can be more inclusive, all the places that we can think about inviting people to the table, take down barriers to entry that potentially are like fake narratives about stuff that we thought were real, that aren't really real. Where did that Mm. come from? Oh, let's throw that out. That's not good down to how we look at these applicant tracking systems, all of those things have sort of been taken apart and sort of parsed through. And the concept of what it means to be the best possible candidate in a role, I think has changed for the better. So Mm. uh, that's what I'm working on. And that's internally, externally in the tech space and the blockchain space, that's a much different matter and a much bigger role that I like to take up all my space around. (laughs) Cool. This is the first time we are meeting, but do I have this right? Do I hear a Southern accent? Oh my goodness. So I spent about 10 years in Atlanta and everything is just like, I don't know. I feel like I was raised there a lot of the time because I grew up in foster care in the Massachusetts foster care system. So I didn't really have that same parenting or those same sort of cultural things. So when I left the foster care system, I was actually homeless for a bit and people were just like, you got to move to Atlanta. That's where everything is. You know, it's cheaper there. Just move. So at the old age of like 19, I packed up all my worldly goods and moved across the country to Atlanta. So yes, I was in Atlanta for 10 years. I do consider it my hometown in a lot of ways. And I do owe the people in my communities there much, much, I would say. I want to ask you a little bit about that because I love how you've talked publicly and the courage to come out and just talk openly about foster care experiences, right? What I want to ask you a little bit about is obviously your personal experiences, but I feel like there's aspects where it feels very, very unique, but you point out in numbers that 
it's unique, but not so unique. It's happening every day with people that you may know and just never knew that about them. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, of course. So my experience with foster care is very specifically unique to me, of course, but it also has echoes throughout the broader systems, right? So it put me in a really interesting position where I wasn't being cultured in the same ways. I wasn't being indoctrinated in the same way. I don't want to say indoctrination, that's a lot. But like I wasn't being taught in the same ways as potentially other people were, right? Mm -hmm. So I was running into the edges and the borders of things that people were saying didn't exist. Like I would mm. say, okay, there's a barrier to entry here. And people were like, no, nah, no, nah, that's not there. That's not real for anybody else but you. And it'd be like, is that right though? So as a person like me, who is defiant to a fault almost, and like just, I would say that the anger at being pushed out, left out, spoken down to consistently, regardless of how smart I was or what I had achieved, having every door slammed in my face sort of developed this I don't want to call it a rage. I want to call it like a cold rage, right? Like a cold rage that sort of fueled me. And now people will tell you that's not healthy. And maybe it's not. But I think that kept me going in the face of everything that was happening at the time, right? And it gave me enough opportunity to be in spaces long enough to show me that other people lived there too. So it wasn't just people who were in foster care. It was people who had transcended other types of abuse, other types of traumas, other types of things, other boundaries, other things. And those things I saw commonality and bridges between and so much about the human experience was impacting the work-life balance and workforces all the time. And people who were leading and managing people had no awareness of these issues whatsoever or how to manage them. And we saw that as soon as 2020 hit, right? As mm. soon as we were in crisis mode about things that people weren't used to talking about, very quickly, leadership looked around and said, oh, damn, we don't know what we're doing here. And suddenly that was fast forward for everybody, right? Yeah. I think we have a lot more in common than we don't. But I think when it comes to systems where we're kept out, right, a lot of us have a lot more in common than we don't, I would say, to that. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. I want to I'll circle back a little bit later because I want to ask you a little bit and explore a little bit about Please, that. I would love to. But I guess just a natural question from that is where do you consider yourself sort of born and raised from? Like what's hometown for you? We just talked about Atlanta, we talked about Massachusetts, you know. So what feels like home to you? So I joke with people that I grew up in the cabbage patch. Like, so how I feel about it is kind of like I didn't grow up in somebody's home. So I kind of raised myself, a TV kind of raised me. So I'm a very weird person in the sense that I'm very much like a cult of personality. So I remember everything from the 80s. I was in love with Freddie Mercury. I remember watching like the Live Aid show. My parents were so young when they had me that they were watching MTV at the time. I was just right? going to say, like, I feel some MTV yes, raising. Yes, right? yeah. so, exactly. So a little <laughs> bit of MTV, a little bit of Denver, the last dinosaur, like all the way up to love boat, you know, <laughs> God, and I would be remiss to not say that PBS raised me. I mean, I felt like Mr. Rogers was my, was my yeah. uncle. I felt like all of those shows, all of that stuff, keep funding PBS people because like, I shouldn't be here, you know, like, um, <laughs> let's be real. So to you know, answer for real. 
I was born here in the Boston area, North Shore, Mass. Actually, Salem, Salem, Massachusetts. My birth father is a witch. <laughs> he thinks of himself as a witch still. Really? He ran nice. for the mayor of Salem many years ago. He is a brown-skinned Latin man. My birth mother, white Irish, she is still living in the local projects here. So that's where I come from. And yeah. then when I was taken away from them and put into foster care when I was three. And I was basically raised by the state. So whatever you think kids get in the state in terms of health care, mental health resources, schooling, that kind of thing, I am a product of that. Plus me, right? So I would say everything, right? A product of the, the society that I've been brought up in, I would say. You have a great role at a, at a really cool company. Like, how did you get started down that career path. And, you know, you have a yeah. tremendous background in helping folks walk us through how you get yeah. to where you are now. Yeah. So like I said, after I moved to Atlanta, I was basically like, okay, now I can start driving my own car, right? Like now this is going to be about me. I'm going to decide how I go. I'm going to start getting help. I'm going to start taking care of myself. I plugged myself into the community there, specifically the queer community there, especially the queer black community there just to be real. And people took care of each other because they had been through similar things where they had been thrown out for who they were. And they were able to sort of survive in interesting ways. And that let me know that that's where the magic of life was, right? The way that people wanted to survive in the face of adversity and still create magic and still be amazing individuals, that all lit me up. And I was like, okay, there's more here. I don't just have to follow the path that's been laid out for me and be one of those kids who goes from like foster care to homelessness to straight into some other terrible system, right? Like, okay, let's think about this. And then I tell this story in my book too. I was, I don't know if y'all know Atlanta that much, but there's this radio show on in Atlanta called The Bird Show. And Tyler Perry at the time when I was living in Atlanta was a fan of the Burt show. And he called into the Burt show as Burt is explaining his relationship with his mother, which has been toxic. And he's putting himself in therapy and he's telling his listeners, it's not your fault. It's okay. You're going to get better. Tyler Perry calls in and he's like, I want to talk about my story too, y'all. And he's like, don't let people take up space in your mind rent-free. They are not going to bed thinking about you. Don't let that be something that eats you every single day. And I was pulled over on the side of the highway in Atlanta. And I was just like, whoa. Because you know when you feel spoken to by like the universe almost and like somebody just looks right at you and speaks to what you're thinking and dealing with? That's that moment for me. And I felt like it kind of nudged me back into my lane. So that's sort of the origin story type stuff. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I happened to be influenced by people who were doing tremendous work at the time in a place where tremendous work is done. So I just happened to be catching drafts of amazing people. So from there, I put myself in college. I went to school at Georgia State. I majored in anthropology, specifically gender, race, and class, African-American studies, the African diaspora, like amazing feats of humanity. Like just, I love people, right? Like I love humanity. So those were the things I did. Everybody laughed in my face. They're like, what are you going to do with that? That's so stupid. You're not going to be able to market that or sell that. Or da, 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 da. And then of course I graduate from college thinking that this is it. I can do whatever I want now. 
And of course, as you both know, that is not true at all, right? Because you think that you have met all of the things that they have asked you to, and then the goalpost gets moved further down the field. So that's the place I was in when I moved myself back to Boston and got a good job working at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, actually. And then that's where I kind of got to do some really cool stuff (laughs) started from there and then just was like, oh, okay, you guys like me as I am. You think I'm authentic. This is a completely different setting than everything I've experienced growing up when we're telling little girls to shut up and be quiet and don't ask for things and be smaller and, you know, all of that stuff. Sorry about my tangent, but that's the story. (laughs) Oh, no, really appreciate it. I want to go back for a little bit because you did briefly mention your book. Tell us more about the book. Yes. So my book, Ally Up, I started writing in 2019. I was doing DEI work at the time. I felt like I kept having the same conversations with people over and over and over again. I felt like these fictive narratives kept being repeated to me as if like somebody had thought about it for the first time. Somebody would be like, of course we care about diversity, but we don't want to lower our standards, Die, Are you suggesting we lower our standards? And it's like, no, Ted but we need to talk about why you think that's lowering your standards. We need to talk about that next. So I started the book in 2019 thinking, okay, nobody cares about this, but I definitely want to have this be the last time I have this conversation personally. I want to make a statement that says, this is what I think about this. This is where I'm at. This is where I am in the arena. This is whose side I'm on. Everybody got it? Cool. Like I was sassy. Now, 2020 happens. That is not something that we did not see coming in the industry. That is not something that we did not see coming in justice work or any of that, right? So like, yes, I did have to adjust my book. No, like I wasn't shocked, like, right? So I'm happy everybody's here now, but are we all here now? So anyway, a lot of that, right? So I wrote the book. I started the book in 2019. I finished it in 2020. It's out now. And I already know more now than I knew then. And I'm still like, do you know what I mean? Like when you write something down and once you publish it, it's already less than you knew. <laughs> you know. So now that you're talking about it two years later, I'm still like, oh, there's still so many things that I would change in that book. But I love the work. You know what, then you can write uh, write part two of the book. book. Yeah, there you go. They're They're like, oh, that's the way it goes. (laughs) You just write the next book in the next book. I'm like, oh, God, ADHD and perfectionism is not going to be good to me if this is how it goes, right? Oh, Lord have mercy. I do want to ask you, though, because you were and have been talking about DEI for quite some time, right? You were talking about it, writing the book before, let's just call it what it is, before it became like mainstream. How do you feel or what do you think about the evolution of the conversations that I guess that are happening inside of organizations pre-2020 and post-2020? So I'll give you an example of something that was happening pre-2020. So it was actually January of 2020. I was trying to work with the CEO of a tech company. I was just consulting at the time, and he sent me an article that basically Google had done, you know, Google's quietly like dismantling their DEI team and that they're doing something else with it. And the article basically sort of made the implication that it was for Google to appeal to a more conservative base, right? That was the article that got sent to me. And the person who sent it was like, guess you're going to have to get a new hustle. DEI's time in the sun seems to be over. So that's where we were in January 2020, in my estimation. And then later that same year, May of 2020, end of May of 2020, suddenly everybody's like, 
where are all of you? We need to do all of these things. We have to be rushing. And I think that everybody hustled to catch up and then sort of let some of those initiatives fade. I feel like the work that we could have done between 2020 and now should be a lot farther along in some of these institutions. And me personally, I wish that sort of these annual diversity narratives that we see from companies that are just apology letters that we didn't get it done again, spoke a little bit more to what our plan was or what our measurements were or how we plan to do better the next time rather than just these, you know what I mean? Diversity yeah. theater, I like to call it. You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. You know what uh, I mean? Eric and I always talk about this is a, a marathon, not a sprint, right? Exactly. And if you sprint when you're supposed to be running a marathon, of course, you're going to run out of gas and you're going to lose that momentum. And I think long term, right, that this will definitely separate the people who or the companies that are really passionate and authentic and really do care about making a change versus those that just want to jump in the spotlight for a minute. Oh, yeah. And I would say I would go so far as to say it already has. I would say that if you haven't made any progress on your goals from 2020 or your money that you had promised to Black organizations hasn't gone anywhere yet, or you're still in the research phase of any of those things that you haven't made any progress on, I think we can say that now is a pretty good time to say that maybe those things weren't priorities, or maybe you need to reassess, something like that. I think we should be somewhere by now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dee, I want to bring it back to your career a little bit here, too, and ask you, why are you so passionate about DEI? Because my identity is wrapped up in everybody else's freedom, right? Like my freedom is wrapped up in everybody else's freedom. I am a small woman. Like I do not, I don't strike an intimidating figure. I'm not what I'm supposed to look like. You know what I mean? I don't fit either. And I like being me. So I really like to take up all of my space. So people who need just a little bit less space than me to be themselves have plenty of shade with which to do so. And I think that must be my place in this world because it seems to be the thing that I naturally do the best. So, I mean, I'm passionate about it because it's me. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I know these things. And what surprises me is not that I do these things. It surprises me that other people don't do these things. And when people ask me, oh, why do you think that you do these things? It's like, I'm thinking everybody else should be doing these things too. And we should all wash our feet together. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, I feel like we should all be like smart enough at this point to understand why we're here. And if we don't yet, then I don't really argue with those people that much. In the beginning, I was like, ah, fight every fight and argue with those people on Facebook. And now I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) I'm really not going to lower myself if you're like committed to misunderstanding me, you know? I think one of the things, though, that you said in your answer there that is really important, especially when you talk about your own personal growth and career development, is you're doing what you are passionate about, right? And so in many ways, it's not a job to you because it's what you want to be doing, right? And I bring that up because I think that that is like, in a way, you're sort of giving career advice too, right? Like people really need to think about who they are and do what they are passionate about doing. You should wake up every morning and go to sleep doing what you're passionate about doing. And I think that's what you're doing. No, I agree. And I think especially if we're talking about like career advice here in the field of DEI and people ops in general, you know, 
pandemic cruise line directors here for the last two years in this trauma and in this crisis. So I think all of that is important to recount too as being part of our overall experience here too. You know, we're talking about these things as if they aren't happening. And I think that's causing a bigger and bigger gap for people who aren't experiencing no problems in this pandemic to close. I wish we could all talk about things the way they really are so we didn't have to put such a huge burden on people who don't fit that main narrative to fill. I wish we saw more progress around those things. We're gonna take a short break and hear from our special sponsor. We're hanging out with Rob Bueller, founder of Bueller.tech. Rob, how are you? Welcome. I'm good, I'm good. Awesome. Listen, Bueller.tech is growing. Rob, tell us what is the core concept behind Bueller.tech? Yeah, it's clear to us that Community is greater than complexity. And we believe that if we work together, we can make digital media and digital advertising a better business to be in. We think about that at the individual level, the department level, and even at the publisher level and anyone that wants to support that concept. I love it. That's so cool. And I love the word that you said, community. Can you talk about the ways that you help the community? Yeah. I mean, we try to connect people with other people and create conversations and Sometimes those conversations are events, roundtables, Slack conversations, right? The key is to move things forward. And one thing I wanted to share with your audience is we like to create speaking opportunities. And mm. we think that speaking in front of an audience is a key skill set people need to advance their careers, which is why we love the Minority Report, because you highlight new voices. And we really support that concept. Thanks a lot, Rob. And thanks for always being such a great supporter of the podcast over the years. Your support means a lot. So everyone, please be sure to check out www.beeler.tech. And now back to the podcast. That's great, Diane. I, I love how some of your hashtags always express, you know, <laughs> D-E-I-B and B for belonging. You know, when I hear you talk about what you're passionate and defiant in a positive way towards, yeah. right? I feel a lot of the beat and belonging. Can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about what belonging means? There's a lot of discussion around D, E, and I, right? Which is really important. But can you talk about the importance in B and belonging and what that means? Yes, absolutely. So when I think about belonging on teams, I think about people who have come to me on teams and wanted to start ERGs or want to start like lunches or queer lunches or meeting together to learn about how to be an affinity group at work, right? So that feels to me like when somebody feels safe enough to be themselves and not feel like they have to to pass or cover or hide, that to me feels like you can bring your cool ideas with you, right? Like yeah, yeah. the thing that I hate about these like monochromatic offices is that they create echo chambers and they all think that the ideas are good and like it creates bad science. It creates bad innovation. And like that offends me as a person who loves science. Let me track back. If diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging were actual initiatives that we cared about as businesses, these would be things that we would measure and we would solve, 
right? Measure and solve. Unfortunately, we set goals like be more inclusive for 2020, and there's no way to measure that. It makes me wonder if we actually want to solve them or if we know how to solve those things, or maybe we don't. I was recently looking at some people ops jobs on LinkedIn just because some friends of mine were laughing about them. And I was like, oh my God they don't even know what they're looking for. Like they don't even know what people who manage people should be doing or people who manage trauma for people should be doing or how to look for that why in people, right? Like if you do this work, your why better be good because like it might carry you through on allyship cookies for one or two months, but you are going to get ground to dirt and you are going to be in the arena every day. If your why isn't strong, you are not going to keep showing up and you are going to experience that burnout that you're talking about. It's fascinating. Corella and I talk with a lot of experts in the space too about often in business, tech, and media, and even other industries, it's very hard to find an area now that isn't somewhat data-driven, right? It's a level of how data-driven are. Yet what we're talking about right now, there's almost been, like you said, bad science, bad data science, or just a lack of understanding. Isn't it fascinating that there isn't the same level of data science applied there. Data science to people ops as opposed to, yes. So we have data science here in people ops. There's huge teams of them. If you look at a company like CultureAmp, you'll see huge teams of people that deal with people ops and people sciences specifically. So it exists and we all know how to do, well, let me track back. A lot of us in this field know how to do this work. But if you think enterprise HR is the same thing as people ops, you're not very likely to get it right because what you're doing is you're likely going on Google and you're looking up ideas for your people op policies and stuff like that. Can you expand on that a little bit for the audience? Can you expand on the difference between the people ops and then maybe the enterprise level HR? I think that would be helpful. So let's start with the difference between people ops, I think of as an umbrella term of everything that people does at a company, right? So from my perspective, as somebody who does this work, that's the umbrella term. That's the person who does all the high level work. That's people ops, right? So that's everything from how you recruit all the way up, all your strategy, all your data, all your measuring to make sure that your culture is going well and that your diversity initiatives around your hiring going well, all of those things are data-driven things, or at least they should be, right? So those are all data-driven things and we do know how to do those things. So that's people ops. There's also HR, which is more about, in my compliance, how we make sure that we are keeping the company safe and all of those laws. Now, there is a big sort of beef in my industry about whether or not DEI should report to HR because HR ultimately keeps the company safe, right? Now, companies would like you to think that DEI should report to HR. That's all good. And da, 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 da. now, but think about it from a situational point of view. If somebody comes to me and tells me that a high level high performer is abusing them or acting racist or any of those things, what's going to happen if that person goes to HR? Like, right. You're all nodding. Oh. Like, right. Okay. <laughs> like, What's going to happen if that person goes to HR? We know, right? It's not going to be the high performer that's likely, you know, a guy that's not going to get kicked out on account of something that, you know, one of these types of issues. So 
DEI is a different thing. If that same person comes to me, I should be reporting to the CEO directly and we should have a relationship where I am telling you this is what's happening in your company and I should be reporting to you directly. You want to have your butt covered by someone like me 100% of the time and lest you be out in the world doing some of the foolishness that other people are doing, right? So there's a big beef in the industry as to whether or not DEI reports to HR. I am of the mind that DEI should report to CEO. So, and if you really want to advance your people strategy or your morale, or if you're one of those people who walks around telling people that you're a servant focused leader, you should, you know, that's, or you're a servant leader. However, if we say that now, that's something you should be focused on. Fascinating. Thank you so much. And I think that's going to be helpful for a lot of companies and a lot of people and a lot of our audience that is hungry to learn more and understand, you know, all day. I was saying somebody a couple of days ago, one of the things that people get wrong so much is that organizations that consider themselves startups don't often have enough people staff on their teams, right? So you should have three people ops people by the time you hit 60 people, if you're interested, and then you should double for scale. I was saying that on LinkedIn a few days ago and people were like, what? And that sort of bummed me out because I was like, y'all are out here rejecting some of my friends for people roles. And here you are not knowing how many people you should have on staff for handling this stuff. That's alarming and not very surprising at the same time because attrition is so high, right? I want to ask you about something else. You mentioned LinkedIn and and I loved your perspective on how to expand the conversation. We just talked about belonging and belonging is fascinating because it, it can transcend color and it can transcend yes. gender and Everything. it's so much bigger, right? So much bigger. Absolutely. Inclusion, belonging. And I want to ask you about like this sense of putting away the shame response, right? Putting <laughs> away the feeling that we can't look at the same thing and recognize kind of what's happening. And I want to ask you about allyship and ways that like you can be a better ally. I feel like this is an area that doesn't get a lot of coverage because it's hard to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah, it's well, Yeah, easy. you have to get out in the arena with your whole naked butt and be like, yeah, allies, and, get behind and, me, we're going. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about like what that means to sort of be a better ally and and how you can reshare that. And, and I think if we want to make big change across all the things that we talk about, right, yeah. there has to be a component of that, right? And yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts and what you share with others around that? Yeah. So for me, when I am allying with somebody at work, and for example, that person is not getting their ideas heard, they are not being treated with respect, I need to talk to that person first and let them know that I see that these things are happening. Because what allies don't understand, one of the biggest things that allies don't understand, in my opinion, is that sometimes it is a safety issue for people of color to be in a situation where they are becoming the squeaky wheel. And that is not the experience of white folks sometimes. So they don't often have that safety feature that some of us came with when we got like our grandmothers, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. sometimes that can be, and especially with sort of white saviors, that can be an issue, right? Like that can be a huge issue. So what you want to have instead, rather than somebody who is there for the wrong reason and who's there to like be a white savior and da, 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 you don't want that in your life, you know, um, one of the first things you need to do is recognize that that person is in control of their boundaries, right? That person sets the boundaries around your allyship with them specifically, right? As it relates to them, that's always the first thing. Mm. 
you don't decide, they decide, right? Duh. (laughs) Next thing. Next thing I would say is if you are doing this generally at work, say their name, recommend them for stretch assignments. Every time the door is closed and somebody else is on the other side of it, I am saying her name. I am saying their name. I am making sure that they are being treated fairly when it comes to their promotions and any issues that come up. I'm making sure that, you know, that they aren't culturally biased issues. Like I'm not dealing with people who are like, oh, so-and-so is so angry. Did you, you know what I mean? Like that's allyship. Understanding the issues that people are met with so that you can be well-versed when it comes your time to lay down the law in front of other people. And you got to be that type of person that can talk to. You got to be that type of person that's okay just like, you know, letting people know. (laughs) So, and I am all those things. And unfortunately, I don't get any smaller. So this was my only option here. (laughs) Besides your own book, what else is on your bookshelf there? What do you read reading these days? Oh my God. So, (laughs) 400 Souls by Ibram X. Kendi. Number one, first of all, get the book because it's excellent, but also get the audible version because they hired such incredible actors to read it. And you will love that. Also, Cast is up there. The Black Friend by Frederick Joseph, who I absolutely adore. So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Olao. I loved her second book, Mediocre. That's fantastic too. God, what else is up there? The Power Manual, Belonging by Bell Hooks. That is not even her best book, but that's what I'm working on right now. I can go down the road. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the Power Manual. What's, the what's power that manual. one about? Yeah, what's a friend that? Of mine, yes, a friend of mine who's a super smart doctor who's doing work right now, better, smarter work than me right now, recommended that to me. It talks about systems of power and how to sort of work your way around them. Another book that I would recommend, which is right here, is White Rage by Carol Anderson. Also excellent, especially if you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I wonder why we're having this conversation about critical race theory in schools the summer after we saw people marching arm in arm down the streets over the George Floyd murder. Like, if you're thinking that to yourself, I suggest Carol Anderson's book because she does an excellent job talking about the sort of swing back and forth between progress moving forward and then the immediate backlash in society. And it's very, very interesting how predictable that can become, right? So if you're interested, that's something I would recommend. Thank you. And we'll feature some of those with recording postings. And oh God, they don't need me. These are all fantastic. Oh, yeah. No, thanks for passing those on. I have a question just about yes. sort of your influence or people who've influenced you and, and, and mentors. Sometimes we say mentors or folks who've influenced you. Tell us I've, a little bit about some of those people in your life. I've had some fantastic people find me. So I don't know how else to describe it, but people will find me in the world right when I need somebody and will just like be there. So one of the people like that who has found me in the world, one of my first ever big bosses is I worked at a child advocacy program in Atlanta and she gave me one of my first big kid reviews. It was my first big kid job. I had to wear big kid clothes to it, right? Like she gave me one of my first big kid reviews and some of it was pretty positive, but of course some of it was like, this girl has no filter. She needs to learn her place, that kind of stuff. And this woman said to me, 
the thing you need to understand about being a woman and being non-white is that people are going to have a lot to say to you about who you should be, what you should sound like, and how you should think. You need to take what you need and let the rest roll off your shoulders and just know that they are going to be there with it every single time, whether you ask for it or not, right? She's a judge now, and she's fantastic. And I've had a lot of people find me and say amazing things to me and remind me that I am doing just great. So like, many people, many people that I owe my life to, I would say. Yeah. All right. Fun question that I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast. (laughs) Give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging because those are just way too easy. Oh my God. I use TikTok (laughs) like you would not believe. I think TikTok (laughs) is the soul of the internet. Seriously, like if you don't know, like I'm serious, if you don't know that the conversation around some of the stuff that we are talking about has moved to TikTok, then like you're missing it because like that is some of the deepest conversation like I have ever heard people have. Like these Zoomers, these Zoomers don't mess around. Like, ooh, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, like as badass as Gen X was and like millennials following them with our avocado toast, I guess. And now, now Gen Z is even more Gen X than anybody ever was. (laughs) And and I'm real proud of them. So I would say TikTok is one of my big ones. I do that all the time. I also check my horoscope all the time because what am I, an animal? Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just trying to think of good ones. I use TikTok. I use, God, you said not to say news. So it's a lot of podcasts. I listen to Spotify a ton. Oh my God. I listen to so much music. Oh guys, you know, want to hear the funniest thing. So yes. you remember how Spotify did that wrap up where they were like, oh, you know, you were listening to like, while everybody was trying to figure out what NFTs were, you were playing da, da, da. And like, <laughs> right. That was the literal quote. And then the next thing that popped up for me was like that sail away song by Enya. <laughs> I listened to that sail away song by Enya apparently nonstop this year because it has been a super long year. But those are some of my favorites. I'm not great at checking my email. I'm not obsessive about it. I love TikTok though. So if people need to get in contact with you, don't email you. Find your email. <laughs> you. <laughs> if you need to get in contact with me, you should find me on LinkedIn. And then you should find me on TikTok so you can laugh at the stuff I'm laughing at. Because like some of it, I'm just like, oh, damn, where are we going? That's awesome. Well, yes. now you just shared with everyone how to find you. Thank you yes. so much for hanging out with us. We're grateful. And thanks for sharing a lot of your experience and Absolutely. personal insights. We want to say thank you again to Bueller tech for sponsoring this podcast and supporting conversations like these it means a lot Beeler tech activating powerful connections and conversations in the digital advertising and media world Beeler tech is your connection to what's possible please check out Beeler.tech. thanks again for listening everyone and you can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video just search minority report podcast and look for the logo thanks very much dies head of inclusion at jam take care take care guys